There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. I'm Brigitte Noël, investigative reporter for Québec in Montreal. I'm your guest host for today. With me is Martin Patriquin, freelancer whose work has been published in the New York Times, in Vice, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, just to name a few. We're recording in my living room in Montreal. Hi, Martin. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about the Canadian government's media bailouts and Doug Ford's war on Ontario francophones. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Shelby Ray Peterson, Colin Tu, Corwin Head, Weldon Penner, Mary Lilly, Ian Edick, Jamie Selleck, and Ben Webster. My name is Ben Webster. I live in Kitchener. I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo. I'm a relatively new resident of Canada, so I support Canada Land because I find it to be such a great resource for finding out about this crazy country of ours. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by FreshBooks, the ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software. A quick question for all you freelancers. If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your time, would you do it? Well, FreshBooks makes that a possibility by simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, getting paid online, all the fun stuff. FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 5 million people to deal with their paperwork. What's more, the FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. If you're doing the math, 192 hours works out to two working days a month. Perhaps more importantly, when tax season rolls around, you'll find tidy summaries of your expense reports, your invoice details, your sales tax summaries, and a lot more. 
If you're a freelancer listening to this and you're not using FreshBooks yet, why not give it a shot? They're offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to Canada Land listeners. Just go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land and enter Canada Land in the how did you hear about us section. So last week, the federal government announced it would be allocating $595 million to bailing out the news media. This will be rolled out over five years in the form of tax credits, incentives. Finance Minister Bill Morneau explained that this was to protect the vital role that independent news media plays in our democracy, in our communities. And I mean, sure, good. It's important to protect our democracy. As a journalist, I'd love to see fewer layoffs and not mm -hmm. constantly feel like my industry is in dire straits. But this money is a complicated gift for a lot of reasons. We'll get to those. But first, can we break it down? Can you tell us about the mechanics of this this project, this legislation? So the, the thousand foot view of it is basically exactly what you just said, that the federal government has sort of watched, like everyone else, uh, the news media in, in Canada sort of go through sort of dry heaves of layoffs and uh, flitting from one thing to another in an attempt to sort of cover off the fact that they are simply not selling ads to the point that they were before and they want to help out because if they don't if they don't help out we're going to see a lot more of exactly what you just said i think it's that simple so we're talking about refundable tax credits to support labor costs temporary 10% or 15% rather credit for people who get digital news subscriptions. Then we have this aspect where nonprofit media will be allowed to apply for charitable status. That's right. Yeah. So non-profit non status, which is an interesting one because if, yeah. you, if you think about it way, way back in the day, uh, and this is like 15, 20 years ago when I was sort of getting into it, I worked for Maisonneuve Magazine. I did a piece for Maisonneuve Magazine and Walrus Magazine. Right. And the business model for them, they quickly figured out was their ability to get nonprofit status. So even 15 years ago before, you know, when this sort of the stuff that we're talking about now, that is to say Facebook, Google, eating all the ad revenue and the yeah. decline in print media, the business model for two of Canada's best magazines was sort of predicated on getting nonprofit status. Uh, the writing was in the wall that long ago. Well, and this is a, something that's pretty big in the states. I mean, Neiman Lab states that in the U.S., nonprofit status for news organization has been pretty lucrative. That sector uh, reaches almost $350 million in total revenue. So yeah. are we late to this party? I think so. I mean, the, the, Why wasn't it possible? I don't know. Lack of imagination. The fact that, again, you know, legacy media, and I don't really like that term because everybody uses it, but it is slow moving. And then always the belief was that, you know, we can somehow turn this around. We were making money for so long doing one very simple thing. That is to say, selling space in our newspapers for money and then using that money to pay for the more interesting stuff in between those ads. We were doing that for so long. We have to be able to use that model and make money on it somehow. And I mean, you know, to the, the media critics point, the one that's out there a lot is that basically the law of diminishing returns hasn't really shaken the foundations of that. It's still very much believed that uh, newspapers have to be able to make money. Or in the case of something like, a, I mean, you could argue the Globe and Mail, you almost have like a benevolent dictator of, a, of an owner <laughs> who, you know, and, and the Aspers got into this in the mid-2000s, got into newspapers and believed that they would, you know, support a newspaper like the National Post 
even though it lost money or didn't make very much money, depending on what you're talking about, simply to, because they like to have the national voice. They like to have influence uh, within the sort of national conversation. And those are the sort of two models. But, you know, I mean, there's a, there's another aspect of it too, and it's one thing that we haven't talked about very much, is, you know, the largest uh, largest newspaper chain in the country, Post Media, they have assets within that chain, and the one that I know most of is because I write for them, is, is the, the Gazette. They, Gazette does quite well, and the Gazette makes a lot of money, and yet they're going through the exact same layoffs as anyone else. The reason being is because they have, uh, you know, uh, loans and, and payment guarantees that they have to make to a parent company, to a hedge fund that owns them, unfortunately. So, I mean, this money is a welcome gift for some, but it's heavily criticized by many mm-hmm. in the industry. Can you talk about some of the criticism that it's been getting? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm conflicted about it. I had a conversation with a guy a few years ago and, you know, sort of bemoaning the whole the whole aspect of media and everything like that. And he goes, and he sort of flipped it on, on, on my argument on its, on its head and sort of said, you know, there's never been a better time to be in journalism because there are so many modes of telling a story. There's so many ways to get your stuff that you're writing or, you know, blogging or you know, podcasting or what have you out to, uh, to human beings. And beyond that, the market for it, like there's such a demand for media now. More so, I would argue than before. But are uh, people willing to pay for it? This is the problem. Yeah, uh, it's not, and it's not only it's not only a question. Well, I mean, that that's one of our issues is that we gave it away for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave it away for free right from the get go because we panicked and we thought, well, our, what we do is so important that if we give it away for free to give people a taste, they'll come crawling back. Which and, is which is like yeah. In a text that you recently wrote, you made an analogy to crack. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the crack dealer. Crack dealer always, when they open and go get into a new market, they give their their shit away for free, uh, with the idea that when they start charging for it, people are going to be addicted and they'll come back. People did not get addicted. People did not get addicted. They moved elsewhere because someone else was always giving it away. You know what the interesting thing is? One one of the interesting points. I actually was talking to Ken White not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Ken White bought a. Uh, the former publisher McLean's. He worked at Rogers Forever. Uh, Your former boss. My former boss. Yes, my former. That's true. He's my former boss. A very, very, very smart guy. A great writer. And I called him up and I go, "Well, you're insane. You're buying a book publisher. What? You know, why are you investing in print and all this kind of thing?" And he he made a point that I hadn't really thought about was that contrary to what the media, print media, has done or did at the outset of the sort of panic when everything was moving online, the book industry never gave away their product for free. They never, ever did. So if you look at book publishers, even when they moved into, you know, it's not PDFs, but, you know, into tablets and electronic editions of of books and stuff like that, the price difference didn't go from whatever you pay for a hardcover, 29 bucks, to, say, you know, three bucks for whatever, whatever they might have charged for something that, you know, you didn't have to pay for ink, you didn't have to pay for paper, you didn't have to pay for shipping. The difference was actually closer to like 10 bucks, you know, so basically, instead of paying 29, you were paying 19. So they never really gave their product away for free. Uh, And lo and behold, he's like, well, you know, there's a market for our stuff, people still want to read books, regardless of what format we put them out is the difference between books and printed media, that is to say news media, is that we never gave it away for free. So I have a tweet in front of me from Ken White actually on this bailout. And he wrote, this initiative is deplorable. It will undermine the credibility of all Canadian news media by its very existence. What do you think of that? There's a, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Because, I mean, we're going into an election year. There's something particular about taking money from the very people we're meant to be holding accountable. Yeah. Are we yeah. being wooed in exchange for positive coverage? 
to be perfectly honest, I don't think we are. I don't think anybody would think that. Or pardon me, I don't think anybody within the industry thinks that, oh, because we're getting this, that we're going to have to give positive coverage to X. The issue is, is a problem of perception. Right. Uh, is people thinking that that might be the case. And as anybody knows, as you know in campaigns, as you know in politics, is that perception is reality. And look, I don't, I don't begrudge that point of view. I think it's very, very valid. Whether or not we actually do it doesn't actually really matter. It's what people believe. And if all of a sudden I'm getting $100 million or what have you from the Canadian government as though we were, you know, a car company or something like that, you can totally understand that. Because why do people, why do politicians bail out companies like, like GM, like, they, like the Harper government did and the Liberal government did before that? They do it for votes. So, you know, if you apply the same analogy to us, yeah. it's almost like you can understand why people would think that. There's also the question of who gets to decide who gets the bailout, who doesn't. I yeah. mean, the government said it's going to establish a quote-unquote independent panel of journalists. Is that problematic? It's a problem for so <laughs> many reasons. We're incestuous. Everybody knows each other. Everybody has personal grudges against, uh, you know, certain media entities. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're in the, we're, I mean, it's the aftermath of a war out there for, for a lot of journalists. You know, there's been, there's been uh, so many layoffs. There's so much bitterness carried by so many people like how can you possibly think that they're going to be indifferent and you know as to who gets this money yeah and um, will and the, this help organizations become more diverse better employers because that's been a push as well well and that's and that's the thing i mean the, the other thing so that's if you ask journalists the other the other thing about asking journalists to do this it's sort of the same thing of asking the, your average human being as to who should be senator that's the liberals the liberals did that with the, with the senators sort of depoliticizing the senators that have that have been named but I mean, they're independent senators in name only. A lot of them are pretty good liberals. Let's be perfectly honest. And again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to happen with the with the journalists who pick to who this money goes to. But again, it's the same thing. Is it a question of perception? If that is the perception of the majority of people out there, that journalists are sort of rewarding or uh, punishing the media entities that this money goes to based on their own personal experiences or their own personal biases, et cetera, et cetera, that's a problem. Some independent media organizations, some critics of this bailout think this is rewarding mediocrity. I mean, this podcast's mm -hmm. usual host, Jesse Brown, has been quite vocal about this. You've yep. written about it yourself. Do you think we're disincentivizing innovation? What is this doing? I mean, as, as far as rewarding, I, I, the term I use was like rewarding failure. Uh, yeah. And I just sort of reflected on how exactly the media industry, the news media, the print, I'm going to be very specific here, the printed news media in Canada and elsewhere reacted to the whole online aspect, right? Uh, when this started, when I was, a, when I was just getting into the industry, like, you know, 18 years ago, the threat back then was convergence, you know, time AOL, these big companies swallowing up media companies to sort of be, make them almost like cogs and convergence wheels, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And people freaking out about that. That didn't turn out to be a problem. But the, the fear was was instructive because, you know, there was obviously with this patente, as they say in French, of the internet, something was going to come and eat our lunch. And that obviously happened. You know, the, I, I still remember the first time I saw Craigslist, the San Francisco-based sort of like uh, classified ads thing. And I was just, the scope of it didn't grasp me. I'm just like, wow, you can just do this and nobody asks you for money. You don't have to give your credit card. You don't really have to give your name. You can just put it on the internet and someone's going to come get it. You know, that turned out to be a massive, massive hit to newspapers because they made a massive amount of money on classifieds. And then pieces of our business just started going out that way. And how did, how did we react? How did, you know, the news media react? Well, you know, 
the bosses still got a lot of money, got paid a lot of money. The difference being was that the companies they were running were making, you know, successively less and less money and they panicked. So we, so they all did sort of the same thing. We, you know, we, we pivoted to podcasts and video. Uh, we did, uh, we wrote long, we wrote short, we did everything possible. You know, sort of well, this, there have been so many attempts, so to many evolve. attempts, exactly. So many attempts to, to, to evolve and nothing worked. And now in, in the real world, in a real sort of proper capitalism, when that happens, you turf the people that are that are there and you you come in with new fresh ideas that as far as i can tell that hasn't really happened in any anywhere partially because the the management didn't know what to do but also because people like you know editors in chief all the way down to lowly peons like myself didn't know exactly what to do about it you know we didn't know what what are we 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 write stories that we want people to read but we didn't really have any idea of how exactly to get beyond putting them on paper and sending them in Canada by way of Canada Post to everybody uh, to everybody out there. So I'm just reading one of Jesse's tweets here. He says that it's going to be like we hit freeze on the Canadian news media at a historic low point, locking in mediocrity indefinitely. It's a bit harsh, I think. What do you think? I mean, he's right. It is a bit harsh. The one thing I would say is that the people running the majority of like the the, the – the bigger the people way up top running the majority of media in this country and it is very uber concentrated are old school media types they haven't gone anywhere is this a wake-up call or is this going to make them settle in and uh, be more comfortable well, with... you just have to judge by the reaction yeah you know they're pretty happy with this so you mentioned this earlier but i want to get back to it foreign companies are now getting the bulk of our advertising dollars facebook and google alone represent 70 percent of this country's online ad revenue yeah what do we do with them? There's been talking about getting them to pay a journalist tax. How do you interpret them as content publishers now? Right, they're they're slippery. Are the actual media companies? Yeah, and and they're a bit like Uber. You know, they they say that oh no, our drivers aren't employees; they're independent contractors, and so they sort of game the system. I literally have absolutely no idea. No, we'd been getting. I don't. I we'd don't, make a lot of money if we had. The I don't. Answers I don't to that. know what the answer is to that because I mean, on the one hand, yeah, sure, they're they're, they're a bit blood sucking and a bit. That's a, a understatement. <laughs> understatement. But I mean, it goes back to what my my friend told me years and years ago about you know the the advent of internet in uh, for journalism. It's such a great opportunity. Facebook gives you massive amounts of exposure. Google gives you massive amounts of exposure as a writer, as someone who wants to get their stuff out. For free, right. But right. Are, do you think they're considered publishers in that sense then? Depends on what, they, the, the definition is slippery depending on yeah. what the circumstances are. That, they would argue that they are not, they are conveyors. But again, we're, we're using old terms to try to define something that is that is completely new. Yeah. All right, I'm going to move over to some tweets that we have collected on this matter. I have here collecting tweets, collecting tweets in my tweet collection. (laughs) Do I sound old? Is that weird? (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is a cynical tweet from Dan Dalmar. A free exchange of ideas between a PMO brandishing 600 million and a struggling industry whose raison d'être is to hold government to account. What could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. There were a lot of tweets about uh, how this you know, what role this will play in pushing organizations to be more diverse. Here we have Media Indigena saying, we will have to checklist to see how many indigenous newspapers will qualify. 
Karen K. Ho asking, do you think the new financial support from Ottawa to Canadian journalism will finally make it more diverse or what? Uh, along with a reminder that the last time a study was done on something like this was in 2004 and people of color made up 3.4% of newsroom staff in Canada. She calls that abysmal. Then we have a comment from Trudeau's senior political advisor, Gerald Butts. Honest question, why were the many millions of public dollars that used to be spent on government advertising in newspapers okay, but this transparent policy change is deplorable? And that was in response to that Ken White tweet that right. I read you earlier. Look, he's, he's right in the sense that, yes, government advertising, like all advertising, used to go by way of, of newspapers, and now they don't. The difference is, with all due respect to Mr. Butts, is that that was a business transaction. Ergo, it began and ended when money was exchanged and the ad was printed. That isn't the case with the bailout. To compare bailout to an advertising is sort of like apples to oranges. Oh, and another interesting one, Drake Fenton. Uh, I'll be interested to see if this applies to non-Canadian organizations that produce Canadian content. Does the organization have to be digital only or would the New York Times count? Because we know they've been making inroads in Canada. The New York Times one is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I've done a few things for the New York Times in the past and, and my ex-editor, who's no longer there, I was talking to him about it one day and he's he was talking about the Canadian... Uh, media landscape and sort of the success of the New York Times here in, in Canada. Now, this is before they, they I mean, Ian Austin's been in Ottawa for a long, long time, but this is before they hired anybody in Toronto or in Montreal. And I was asking him about it and he goes, it's it's absolutely incredible the number of subscriptions, digital subscriptions to the New York Times. That is to say what we now know is subscriptions because you can't, I mean, you can buy the paper here, I suppose, but the vast majority of the vast, vast, vast majority are digital subscriptions. In Canada, is exponentially large to our population. That is to say, people in Canada are buying the New York Times like crazy and we are we are scurrying to get Canadian content in there for this very reason. And I go, well, why do you think that is? And he goes, it's because of the demise of the media in Canada. He says there are less- That's of, grim. Yeah, he said, so, so the New York Times, that is the, the extent to which not only companies like Facebook and Google and all those awful guys, are eating our lunch, but the New York Times is actually coming in and sees space in the Canadian media landscape in the wake of all these, of, of downsizing, of massive layoffs, of closing of titles, and say, we can do something in here. And lo and behold, that is exactly what they're doing. One of the very few examples of a successful transition from print to digital, that is to say the New York Times company, is basically making a clinic here in Canada. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Okay, Martin. It's yes. time for the section of the show that we call Duly Noted. Do you have anything to duly note? Transcontinental, big what media are, company. What are they doing? They're massive. Yeah. Impervious to uh, the, mm. even the smallest little man. <laughs> Except if that smallest little man wants to stop getting their freaking poobly sacks. What do they call the English candidates? Like bag full of flyers. Bag full of flyers delivered to their house. So he basically had a thing that said you want to opt in instead of opting out, right? And so he had a campaign to, to sort of get this going because, look, you know, it's a lot of resources that go into publishing these things or, you know. Well, he thinks it's polluting. He thinks polluting. Well, exactly. So it's a waste of energy and these things just go straight into the trash. So, you know, like a lot of people, he just tried to perpetuate this with his neighbors and what have you. And transconsenta mise en demeure, which is a very nice French sounding term, which doesn't translate well into English, which means letter of demand, basically saying stop doing this or else. And David and Goliath. David and Goliath, yeah. So Freaking they made media him. companies, man. You're not doing yourself any favors. Don't they know there's a bailout coming? <laughs> duly noted. I'm going to take this opportunity to duly note my favorite Montreal-based Instagram account. Do you know Fuck No MTL? I don't. Do you follow them? Fuck No MTL. I don't. Instagram, I don't do it. I don't do Facebook or uh, Instagram. You should do it just for this. So it's I'm a this Twitter slut. Twitter slut. Collecting tweets. I collect tweets. All day, all night. Okay, so... Fuck No MTL is a mashup of weird things happening in the city. It's mostly construction chaos, weird things spotted on garbage day or in the metro, bagels, orange construction cones. Um, But it also has this gonzo journalist or like whistleblower quality to it. Um, If you want to find out more about funny or sometimes worrisome things happening in Montreal, this is the account for you. Fuck No Montreal. At Fuck No Montreal. At Fuck No MTL. Do we know who runs it? Uh, It's anonymous. Anonymous? I mean, I do, but... Do you? Because you're, you're, you're a journalist in the know. I'm, a, I'm a, an investigative journalist. There you go. Duly noted. Moving on to our next topic, Francophobia. The Coles notes of what happened on November 15th at 5.04 p.m. specifically. Wow. Ontario Finance Minister Vic Fidelli delivered the fall economic statement, which gave us an idea of how Doug Ford's progressive conservatives would tackle the province's $15 billion deficit. So among the quote-unquote efficiencies were several cuts affecting the province's 600,000 or so francophones. Gone was the plan to build the province's first francophone-only university in the Toronto region. Out went the office of the French Language Services Commissioner. We've since also learned that he's cut a $3 million subsidy to Nouvelle-Seine, which is a francophone arts centre in Ottawa, and which could mean the closure of this institution. Uh, He's also shutting down the province's only three French-language educational magazines, which were financed by the federal, but the province gets to decide where that money goes, and so they've been ordered to stop printing. Right. As a Franco-Ontarian, which I am, 
this feels like an attack on my culture. What does it look like to you? It, it is that, obviously. He basically yada yada the rights of, you know, the number of Franco-Ontarians is a sticky thing. It's between 550 and 600,000. Uh, so he, you know, did that to a historical minority in Ontario, and it's awful. That said, he's a populist politician, and he's very you know, adapted <clears throat> political cynicism. And he said, look, we have all this money going to a small population. And let's be perfectly honest, that small population doesn't vote for me. Look where the Francophones are in Ontario. Well, he didn't say that, but... It no, was, no, this, but this is this yeah. is the political calculation he made. But, and, but, but more than that, more than... I don't think it's Francophobia, perfectly honestly. I, th I just, I honestly, just because I think that word is thrown around being here in Quebec, it's thrown around so much that it sort of loses its meaning. What I will say about what he did was that uh, he's indifferent to it. He's perfectly oblivious and indifferent to the he French. He doesn't understand to the French the to the French fact in Ontario. He doesn't know, but he just he just doesn't. I mean, he's, he doesn't care. He's like Donald Trump, like in that sense. And I'm not comparing him to Donald Trump, but I mean, Donald Trump is is just beyond actual hatred and enmity. I think he just he just doesn't he's, he's oblivious to it. Well, because let's break it down mathematically. This isn't really a cost saving measure, according to a lot of experts who've analyzed this. The university represents about ten million dollars a year spread out over. Seven years, 11 million, sorry. Plus they got to build it. Well, yeah, but that budget is one-tenth of 1% 1 of the total higher education budget, according uh -huh. to uh, Zian Adan, who's the president of the university's governing council. Yeah. That's nothing. It's a line item. But to him, that's the whole point, is that you, you strike out stuff in a budget that you think you can do without. Uh, and again, I come back to what I said before. He doesn't understand French. He probably doesn't know very many French, but he's from fucking Etobicoke for crazy. There's no French people in Etobicoke. He's never been outside there, hardly. Uh, and so what, what is, you know, what does he care? He doesn't, he didn't under, I mean, the, and the proof positive is the fact that he backed down on some of this stuff anyway last week. Not really. He backed down, he backed down on the French languages commissioner. But it's still going to be under the ombudsman. I mean, it's a symbolic back down. It's he, not really changing much. Right, but his his whole thing was that, remember the quote that he gave to CBC right after he did? He says, like, look, I love French, I love Italian, I love everything, but <laughs> we're broke, so, you know, it's not it's nothing personal. Then, lo and behold, it was personal because he got a huge amount of pushback yeah. uh, from, from people. And it so, to me, it sort of laid waste a little bit to the idea that's perpetuated here in Quebec is that francophones outside of the, the borders of Quebec are, you know, basically like a voiceless rump. That, Assimilated. Uh, assimil well, no, not, not so much. Assimilating. The ones, the ones that are, the ones that existed, yes, their, their numbers are, are dwindling, but also the, the fact that the powerlessness of them. But their numbers are not dwindling. Francophones in Ontario are actually on the rise. I mean, they're, being they're because our population is increasing. They're, it's on the rise, but it's not as fast as the rest exactly. of the population. Yeah. Which is the same thing as francophones here in Quebec. Let's talk about media coverage of this story. You kind of briefly touched upon it. We live in Quebec. Uh, I work in French media, and I feel yeah. like the outrage was immediate here. Politicians spoke out, pundits, everybody yeah. was up in arms. Um, and there was this solidarity among Francophones. There's been criticism that Anglophone media outside of Quebec, because Anglo media here, uh, were also quick to condemn the move. You notably wrote a piece for the Gazette. Uh, the paper's editorial board spoke out as well. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Anglo media's response outside of Quebec? This, it's the same as Ford. It's it's sort of like bafflement and indifference when it comes to the francophone. You can the the idea that there's a French fact outside of the borders of Quebec if it doesn't involve borders. Well, first of all, French for people in Toronto-based media 
is is you know it happens in Quebec and what you know occasionally it'll pop up if you know someone calls someone a racist or whatever and then so that's one step of detachment there's an even a further step of detachment when you talk about francophones that live outside Quebec because that just doesn't make any sense to anyone so I I think the the reaction within uh, the Toronto based media was just that was just like oh well that's weird and then when people like myself and people like Patrick Lagasse from La Presse wrote what they wrote. They yeah, let's re- talk about Patrick Lagasse. Yeah, so he, basi- he basically said, you know, where's the outrage? He, so he is one of the most respected columnists in the province, writes in French typically, but wrote yep. exceptionally a column in English calling out Anglophone media on for, their for, lack of... For having talked about this. For not having talked about this. For not, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, so, uh, and lo and behold, everybody started publishing pieces after that. The Globe Mail Globe Mail came out with a piece within like three hours of that. Yeah, but some people had written columns. There had been, I mean, um, Rick Gibbons wrote in the Ottawa Sun, you know, he was critical of Ford's cuts. Didn't say anything about the Francophone University, but was really critical about the cuts to the, the office. Yeah. I mean, there were some pundits speaking out about Chantal it. Chantal Hébert, I think. Of I think, course, uh, yeah. Uh, Patrick uh, mentioned that. Fellow, fellow Franco-Ontarian, as far as I know. She is. A, yeah, yeah she's right. from Southern Ontario. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Globe published a column titled Franco. Like, I just want to point out that there were some columns. There was some solidarity from Anglo media. As a Franco-Ontarian, I didn't feel like it was that radio silence as it's been described. I did feel that a lot of people got involved. I do feel that some... After, but I mean, I, I think Patrick, Patrick's point... He might have triggered much of it. I yeah. think yeah, he, tri- he triggered some of it for sure, but also the, the point, I mean, and it's a bit boiters. What's boiters in English? Boiters, it's a bit... It doesn't... Dodgy? No, the, the, the comparison, doesn't, the comparison doesn't quite fit the, you know, the idea that, you know, why, why didn't McLean's put out a, a cover of uh, Ontario, the most francophobic yeah, province in Canada and all this kind of stuff? Well, I was like, well, this is one incident. incident. It happened now. Give it... You know, Give it space time. space to breathe. Ford ended up backing down on some of this stuff. B, McLean's is a monthly that has like three reporters and a ferret running the place right now. It's a time. Yeah. I mean, not to denigrate what McLean's is doing uh, at times all. Because there's people there that I really, really admire. Yeah. But times are tough. Uh, the idea that the McLean's can sort of pivot and all of a sudden come out with this you know manufactured outrage within 48 hours of this happening is patently absurd. Mm. Let's talk about political reaction to this. Let's talk about Carolyn Mulroney and her and she didn't say a lack word. of reaction. I think I think I counted ten words or something that she said about the whole thing in the in the space of a week and a half. Here I have one of her sentences yeah. translated roughly. She said, "If francophones are worried, I'm listening. I'm committed to working every day to advance the Franco-Ontarian cause." That's more than ten words. More than ten words didn't sit well with her francophone public. No, and, and I mean the 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 thing that I. And I touched on it before the the thing that really that i saw in the whole thing was that it's really laid waste to the idea that franco ontarians and francophones outside of quebec don't have any political pull is patently absurd mm. if you look at where justin trudeau is coming from his dad was one of the original people who you know instituted official bilingualism specifically because he believed in francophone he believed that there was frank frank and this is politically you know cynical on his part but that francophones outside quebec were important for them for vote uh, as a as a voting base but also very very important in terms of like you know the country's history and all this kinds of stuff and that they must be supported and so trudeau is his son is basically coming at it exactly the same way so the idea that franco-ontarians are don't have uh, don't have a say isn't i don't think is necessarily true and i think the last week in the wake of, of Ford's decision, sort of, it's sort been of demon- obvious, demon- that- demonstrative of that. Yeah, 
So the real standout in all this for me and for many people has been PC MPP Amanda Simard, who yep. is a Franco-Ontarian from Glengarry Prescott Russell. Um, she broke ranks with her party to speak out against these cuts. What do you think of what she's doing? What do you think? Where do you think this is heading? I mean, that's a very interesting point. So the Toronto Star came out with a story this week that talked about how a bunch of MPPs within the Conservative Party are thinking of bolting. Yeah, um, crossing the floor. Crossing the floor. I think if it was a normal, quote unquote, normal government that had a sort of hold on its own members and its own uh, members of, uh, what is it called in Ontario? MPPs? Yeah. Member of Provincial Parliament? that she would have suffered some sort of consequences for doing what she did. She, when when the, the finance minister got up and talked and everybody started clapping, she sat and, and uh, yeah. was very obvious and not clapping for any of this kinds of and stuff. And then she clapped for the NDP. And then she clapped for the NDP. That's right. So I think in a normal world, you know, she would have suffered some sort of consequences for that. She didn't. And in fact... Ford in his comeback, uh, in his crawlback, pardon me, on on all of this. Yeah. I don't think he mentioned her necessarily by name, but all of a sudden, Carolyn Mulroney was a, what is it, superstar uh, cabinet minister. I mean, really, like, good for her. Good for her, but also, you know, she was one of the few conservative MPPs that is uh, elected in an area where there's a significant Francophone population. Prescott Russell's, there's, there's a lot. It's, a, I guess, a basically an excerpt of uh, Ottawa, right? Yeah, is and that... they've always voted liberal. I think this is the first time in years that they elect a PC member. So yeah. On Saturday, Francophone and Francophile groups across the province have planned protests in about 40 different regions. As we record these words, federal party leaders are meeting in Ottawa to chat about the future of Francophone Canadians, which I think is a first. So yeah, I guess we'll sit back and see what's going to happen. Yeah, the, the the rumblings that I heard uh, was that the federal government, liberal federal government, is trying to cobble together a way to build that Francophone university in Toronto. And that the agreement that they would have with Ontario was that they would provide the funds to build it, but that Ontario would have to fund it year per year. That's huge. Look, Interesting, look, yeah. L- listen, I mean, not to, not to be a glass half full on all of this, but I mean, a week ago, Francophones in Ontario were a put-upon minority group, all of a sudden, they've got all this backing. Uh, yeah. That's that's pretty good. As a Franco-Ontarian, I think it's been so heartwarming to see this community and this support and this kind of solidarity around the yeah. French cause. And it's and, lovely and, to be recognized. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing, and it's, it's a phenomenon that happens only outside of Quebec because Quebec has, has language laws, that a huge number of English parents and English-speaking parents uh, send their kids to bilingual schools or send their kids to French schools. French schools are overflowing. They're overflowing. In, like in, in Ottawa, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, you know, people want their kids to learn this kind of thing. And that is the sort of Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, uh, you know, dream was the fact that French is actually flourishing outside of Quebec, which, as you point out, I don't think it's necessarily flourishing, but it's... It's not the, uh, what was it? What is it? Uh, was it Rene Levesque that called them dead ducks? Dead ducks. Dead ducks. We're not dead ducks. We're not anywhere close to being dead ducks. Thanks so much, Martin. Thank you. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Jesse Brown will return next week. If you haven't listened to it yet, check out the Thunder Bay podcast. The final episode just dropped this week. Full disclosure, I helped with some of the research on this project, and it truly was a fascinating investigation into some pretty troubling stories. Ryan, Jesse, and the Canada Land team did an amazing job putting it all together. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada Land. Martin, where can people find you? At Martin Patrickwin. So it's at M-A-R-T-I-N-P-A-T-R-I-Q-U-I-N. 
And you can find me on there as well at bridge underscore Noel. That's B-R-I-G-E underscore Noel. You can find all of Canada Land's podcasts and reporting online at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support Canada Land at patreon.com slash canadaland. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.